For months, concerns have been growing around a possible return of Schedule F. It's a now-revoked executive order from the Trump administration that attempted to make some federal employees at-will workers. Now the Biden administration is taking a step to try to safeguard career feds against the potential effects of Schedule F in the case that it returns. Federal News Network's Drew Freeman joins us with more. Drew, how are you? I'm good, Eric. Thanks for having me. Of course. So why don't we just start out? First, you can give us an overview of what Schedule F is and why people are afraid of it. This was a job classification that the Trump administration put into action through an executive order at the end of 2020. And the goal of that executive order was really to reclassify about 50,000 career federal employees, so those that are non-political, and move them outside merit systems principles. Essentially, it would have, if it had been carried out to its its full effects, that it would have made those positions at will and therefore the employees easier to fire. This was focused largely on policy-related positions. The advocates of that executive order said that it would offer flexibility and accountability for these career federal employees, but it quickly gained really major pushback from federal unions and other organizations. The Biden administration revoked the executive order within his first couple of days in office, so agencies largely weren't able to actually implement this Schedule F policy. However, it is something that has maintained attention both from agencies, from outside groups, as well as in Congress for several years now. All right. And so now the Office of Personnel Management has issued a new proposed rule on this topic. What does that proposed rule say? This would essentially do a couple of things for career federal employees. The goal is to really hedge against this possible return of Schedule F in a future presidential administration. If something like that happened, OPM right now is looking to adjust or uh, define some of the factors around Schedule F to make sure that, you know, these employees in in OPM's perception would be better protected in the case that it does return. So, for example, federal employees who might be considered for reclassification to Schedule F would still receive notice of that and they'd be given an opportunity to respond. They also, they wouldn't have their civil service protections removed unless that employee gave them up voluntarily. The proposed rule also clarifies the definition of the positions that the Trump administration was initially targeting with Schedule F. So those policy determining, policy making, and policy advocating positions that were the ones that would have been uh, reclassified to Schedule F. OPM is now clarifying that those specifically refer to non-career political appointments, meaning that this is a protection or an effort at a protection for those who are career employees and non-political. So that's kind of their goal here is to just hedge against the possibility that Schedule F If it were to return, there are some now protections in place for federal career employees. Why now? You know, we're three years into the Biden administration. We had heard some talk about this before uh, they had gotten into office. And what about this proposed rule or what about the timing makes them want to take this on now? This is coming on the heels of several Republican presidential candidates for 2024 who have said that they are looking to remove career federal workers or have used rhetoric that would essentially is looking to remove some of these protections or try to hold federal employees more accountable. So this is, you know, there's a little bit of back and forth here, both within the administration and within Congress as well. So as these conversations continue to become a little bit more common. This is something that OPM is now trying to do to to protect against that. 
We're speaking with Federal News Network reporter Drew Friedman. So is this going to be enough? There are some federal workforce experts who are skeptical on whether or not this would fully prevent Schedule F's return. Why is that? So the way that OPM is going about this is through the government's rulemaking process. And what that does is it essentially allows OPM as an agency to, or other agencies can similarly, you know, do things within their own fields. But in this case, OPM is looking to propose a rule and then eventually make it final on the federal register. This is a process that agencies can use to kind of clarify the rules around existing laws that for the government. So this is a way that they are trying to kind of bolster that. But the question here that some federal workforce experts have said is that, you know, a future administration, a future presidential administration could similarly issue its own set of rules or proposed rules to kind of backtrack or change gears, essentially, on what OPM is trying to do currently. Still, OPM Deputy Director Rob Shriver, the current Deputy Director for the agency, said that the rulemaking process does take several months and it's stronger than, for example, an executive order. So there's a little bit more strength here from the Biden administration and, and their efforts here, but some have said it's not necessarily going to be enough to fully prevent the rise of Schedule F in the future if it comes to that. You mentioned the conversation that some presidential candidates are having. So where else is Schedule F getting attention while this topic is in that arena? This is definitely something that's come up a lot more in Congress more recently. A little bit earlier this year, we saw the introduction of a bill called the Saving the Civil Service Act. This is something from Senator Tim Kaine and Representative uh, Jerry Connolly in the House. And essentially that bill would block future presidential administrations from enacting another uh, policy similar to Schedule F. This is something that Democrat lawmakers have introduced for several years in a row now, ever since the Trump administration had that executive order from 2020. But so far, it has not been enacted. And the bill this year, beyond being introduced in both chambers, hasn't had any action as of yet. Still, Kane and Connolly said that the proposed rule from OPM that came out just a few days ago, they said it serves as an important first step to protect merit-based principles and that they're going to continue pushing on their legislation, which would codify a similar uh, type of policy to prevent the possible return of Schedule F here. And so wrapping up, what is coming next on the horizon? What should we be looking out for as this uh, topic gets debated in Congress and everywhere else, apparently? Right. It'll be interesting to see, you know, what happens in Congress, if there's any action or movement on this bill, the Saving the Civil Service Act, as well as now this proposed will from OPM, which is kind of clarifying some of these rules around career federal workers. They're opening that proposed rule to public comments for the next 60 days so people can kind of comment or give feedback on OPM's proposal here. And in the meantime, you have seen a lot of federal unions and other organizations kind of applauding the the goals of OPM and the Biden administration here. But as for actually, you know, getting something in law, well, that's kind of remains an open question and and we'll just have to see where it goes from here. All right. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thank you so much. Thanks, Eric. You can find her story at federalnewsnetwork.com along with all of her other reporting as well. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, 
Retired Army Major General Tammy Smith felt for the first time that she could lead her team authentically. Smith, a longtime leader and one of the military's highest-ranking openly gay officers, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share her perspective on collaborative and genuine leadership. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by retired U.S. Army Major General Tammy Smith. Major General Smith, welcome, and thank you for joining me. Shane, it's great to talk to you this morning. Your career in the military spans more than 30 years. Was there ever a moment or point in your career that changed your trajectory, and what was that? I have a very unique one that occurred that did change my tra- trajectory in many ways, and that is at my about 25th year of service, um, the law known as Don't Ask, Don't Tell that prohibited people who identified as gay from serving in the military, that was repealed, and now you could be open in the military. And soon after that happened, I married Tracy, my wife, and I was also notified I'd been selected for promotion to Brigadier General. And at that time, there had been no general or admiral who had come out or identified their family in any way that you would, you would know that they were gay. And so just by timing, I ended up being the first openly gay general in the U.S. military. And what changed for me in that is I still had all the things that I had to do, of course, as a general, which was a lot of hard work that went into that. But for the first time in my life, I was able to lead authentically. 25 years, I had compartmentalized a part of me, and I had hidden things, and I had not been my full self at work. And I had not been my full self with my coworkers. And the repeal of that law and the opportunity then to be the sort of LGBTQ champion in the Department of Defense as a senior leader, what that did is it got me closer to my authentic leadership style and my authentic self because I was more comfortable in my own skin and I wasn't looking over my shoulder at all times thinking that I might have said something that would reveal what my true life was and then lead to my dismissal from the military. Having that weight off of my shoulders, not having to hide who I was at work, made me such a better leader than I had been in the 25 years that I had served previously. It's fascinating to hear your story about that because I was alive during all that and followed it as well. It's a a wonderful thing. Your career included a lot of firsts. You were the first female general officer, as you said, um, to serve in the 8th Army headquarters level position. Uh, You already talked about being um, the first LGBTQ general and flag officer. How does being first, how did that influence your leadership style? I was first in a lot of places through no fault of my own. Uh, by virtue of having joined the military in the 80s when there weren't a lot of women who were choosing that as a career path. So there were many things, even as a young person, where I would show up and I would be the only woman who was in that particular unit or doing that particular type of training. And what you get as a first is you, you assume this mantle of being a role model 
for, I don't know if it's your, your group or yourself. And in these roles of first, I would have to say that complete competence was always expected because you were elevated a bit and people noticed you more because they knew you as the first. And so you, you just gained extra attention of that. But with that, that attention brought a great deal of responsibility. And you've said in the past that your interest in leadership dates all the way back to high school when you first joined Future Farmers of America. And how did that early education, that organization, change your path later in life? Future Farmers of America, well, it's certainly to teach people about agriculture, but it's also it teaches people to be leaders so that in the agricultural world, people entering into that as an industry have the skills uh, to be leaders in that world. And I loved learning about speaking. I loved learning about being on a team. There were many things that I learned about leadership early in high school through FFA that suited me well. They are skills that I used all the way up through Two Star General. And one of the one that jumps out the most at me is communication. I mean, we already talked about how it's important to be competent, but sometimes your competence comes from the presence that you project, and a lot of that presence comes from how you are able to communicate. So in times when I had uncertainty, I could convey confidence through my communication skills in a way that would get me through some ambiguity and things would turn out all right. But those skills go back. Those are base skills that I learned way back in high school and through my association with FFA. It, it's really great and, and refreshing to hear you meld those two concepts of confidence and competence because really both are required for um, expansion as a professional but also into leadership roles. I think so because if you're if you're the leader in the role, people want to trust, and so your competence certainly informs a bit of that trust. But your ability to communicate that and to speak to your team in a language that your team understands and to be able to adjust for that, I think that that informs that trust a great deal, which is what produces the results: is the trust within the team. Excellent, excellent. Uh, what's one piece of advice that you would go back? And tell yourself if you were starting uh, again in your career. When I started my career, of course, well, I certainly had some skills. I, w- I wasn't a rounded, informed, wise leader of any sort. And I think that people have a leadership style that suits their personality uh, until they learn more skills. And for me, I was a collaborative leader. And I always have been a collaborative leader, but right from the beginning about what I would tell myself to do differently. Sometimes when you are a young leader with a team with direct responsibility and direct reports, sometimes collaborative leadership feels to the team like you can't make a decision. Sometimes at that level of leadership, what the team needs is for you to just tell them what you want done by what time. And so... I'm going to say that I wasn't as effective as a younger leader in those situations where I was in these direct leadership roles because my tendency towards collaboration um, frustrated the team a bit. But when we jump ahead 25, 30 years, collaboration 
in the willingness to take a little bit more time with decisions that impact things on a longer timeline, those are exactly the skills that you need. So I would tell my younger self, be a little bit more direct, have a bit more awareness of where you are in the structure of the organization and the timelines that you're working in, and don't be afraid to be a little bit more direct um, as a young leader, even if your natural style is a bit more collaborative. That is excellent. And as somebody who's looked at and studied leadership over the years, there are many different leadership styles, everything, uh, many different formally studied leadership styles, <clears throat> and collaboration, situational. I, 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 I love how you put it in context. It's not that one is good or bad, but depending upon your role and where you are in your career and those who uh, work for and with you, yeah. you can change to you meet the needs. You definitely can, and the whole timeline is important when you are choosing your leadership style to get the results that you want, because it's all, of course, results-driven. And in some cases, and this was true in military leadership and true in, in many places, is sometimes the urgency of the decision doesn't allow for the collaboration because a missile is coming in or, you know, something something is timed in, in a financial type of way and you have to hit a particular timing point. And so you, you've got to make these decisions quickly. But sometimes making quick decisions, I, I talk often that it's easy to make a decision. It's harder to make a good decision. And you have to take into consideration the timeline that your decision is going to impact and that will influence the style of leadership that you choose to come to that decision point if you can kind of follow my logic there. I think it's fascinating. And, and maybe what you're also saying is that part of leadership, um, a, a never-to-be-forgotten dynamic, is, is judgment. You know, there's a judgment component to all of this. So you just mentioned you're, you're um, making decisions using judgment as far as what's the best leadership role for this moment, for this decision. Yeah, I think there is a lot of judgment in that, and it goes back to that quest for competence because as your skills improve, your judgment will improve because you've, you've peeked around the corner a little bit, you've been exposed to more things, and you are able to exercise judgment in a way that would have been impossible when I first started. Um, I think that that experience certainly informs judgment, which is why sometimes it, when you're looking at somebody at the executive level, it looks so easy for them. You know, They see the big pieces earlier. That's because for probably 30 or 40 years, they've been looking at all the little pieces. And in some of this, then their judgment becomes almost intuitive to them because of the experience that they had gathered over that time frame. Perfect. What, <clears throat> is there a figure, either from your personal life or maybe in history, that has been an inspiration, that has inspired your leadership style? It's somebody who no one has probably heard of, and that's my brigade commander, Colonel Pullen, who I was exposed to early in my career as an officer. He was a Vietnam veteran, and in his role as brigade commander, what he wanted to teach all of us was attention to detail for consequential decision-making. And so he would ask very specific questions such as, 
when you get to the rifle range and you offload the buses, which side of the bus are the soldiers going to come off of? Because then that was whether or not you might need a road guard to cross the road over to the range and that sort of thing. But what he would tell us is that leaders will make life and death decisions based on the information that you provide them. So make sure that your information is correct when you provide it to them. And that stuck with me throughout my career is that when I was either informing a decision maker or if I was the decision maker, the question from Colonel Poland always came up is like, is that what you think or is that what you know? Tell me how you know it. Meaning, did you see it? Did you touch it? Did you read the same report? And, and just to understand that, especially in the military, that line of work, that the decisions that are often made are, are literally life and death types of decisions. Excellent. Excellent advice. Um, General Tammy Smith, it's been an honor and a privilege to meet you and talk with you and, and listen to you share uh, your leadership journey with us. Thank you very much for your time. It's great to talk to you. Thanks. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we will talk to you next time on Lessons in Leadership podcast. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.